I'm Keenan Heidi, donation consultant with Donor Alliance. And I'm Claire Talon, donation consultant with Donor Alliance. And you're listening to Transforming Lives, the Donor Alliance podcast. Welcome to Transforming Lives, the Donor Alliance podcast. I'm your host, Claire, and I'm here with Keenan. Our guest today is Jennifer Henderson, Family Services Manager. How are you today, Jennifer? I'm doing great, Claire. Thank you for asking. I'm really excited to be here and appreciate the time. Thanks for being here today. Um, we're going to be discussing um, clinical triggers and when to make an organ referral. We appreciate your time. Uh, but before we get started, do you have a personal connection to donation that you'd be comfortable sharing with us? Yeah, Claire, thanks. That's a great question. Um, I do actually have um, two connections to transplant and donation for me, uh, working as a licensed clinical social worker for several years in a kidney and liver transplant program, um, just understanding what patients and their families go through waiting for an organ transplant and, and the surgery and, and just the change that is so profound afterward for themselves and their families and communities. I also have a friend that received a bilateral lung transplant about seven years ago, and it was just amazing to see how sick he was, and then later playing golf and enjoying hiking again. Um, unfortunately, I also did have a friend and coworker that I was really close to that was waiting for a transplant and didn't survive. Gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, would you be willing to share a little more about that? Well, I think that Many of us know somebody that is chronically ill or critically ill with something, and transplant as an option is just so full of hope. But unfortunately, we know that it's not something that everyone on the wait list is going to see. So it's pretty heartbreaking when you know somebody that just didn't get there. Yeah, and as an aside, uh, we lose about 20 people every day on the waiting list. And so I think the work that we do is so vitally important to try to get as many people off the waiting list as possible. Yeah, and I, for me, I think it just builds in even more meaning into the work that I do in my practice. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Sure. Now, can you tell us what the clinical triggers are for an organ referral? Yeah, so um, our nurses and nursing students um, learn here in the states of Colorado and Wyoming um, to call in a referral on a patient that's vented and has a GCS of five or less that often has a neurological injury. And are there any other triggers? There are actually some other triggers. So if there's a loss of two or more brainstem reflexes, um, we ask that they call in the referral. And also including, you know, if there's a discussion of brain death or a patient appears brain dead or a brain death examination is anticipated, um, as well as for end of life. Um, so if a family's decided that um, they don't wish to proceed with the level of care, they want to de-escalate or even take them off the ventilator, that's the perfect time to make a call to us. Um, also, any time a family has questions about donation, we want to be the people that talk to the family and give them that information. And when the hospitals make these referrals, um, how many of those patients become donors or do some of those patients survive, they get better? What does that look like? You know, um, the referrals on patients, it 
patients' care and their stability and their um, state of health often changes rapidly throughout the course of their hospitalization. So we have referrals on patients that often get better, um, which is always, you know, makes us happy to be able to close that referral. And then we have um, our patients that continue to worsen or get to that point where they're eligible to be donors. So I have to say that it's a pretty small percentage of patients that go on to actually be donors. Okay. And is there a regulatory piece to this? Are the hospitals compelled to call in these referrals? What is that uh, like? Yeah, that's a good question. So Center for Medicare and Medicaid, or CMS, um, which is a national regulatory organization, requires hospitals to call um, referrals in on patients within 60 minutes. So it's something that's monitored um, by the government, by CMS, and definitely we monitor that internally as well. Okay, thank you. Great, so you know, that's really vital information and great to know. Um, is there a specific number to call to make that referral? Sure, we um, ask that anyone that's making the referral, and I should back up too because it's not just nurses that make the referral, it's um, MDs or residents make the referrals, respiratory therapists, um, unit clerks, chaplaincy, anyone can make the referral. You don't have to be clinical or a nurse. Um, and our phone number's kind of everywhere in the hospital, so it's located on mouse pads and on other materials and on our trigger cards that they wear um, with their badges. But our phone numbers are a 1-800 number, which is 1-800-448-4644. And then we also have a local number, that's 303-321-0060. So what information is going to be needed during that referral call and kind of you know, what does that look like? What is the time, how long is that call gonna last? The information's pretty basic. So if a nurse is at the computer in the electronic medical record, they're gonna have all of it at their fingertips. Basically, it's pretty much off the face sheet. So they're gonna be questioned about demographic information like name and address, um, height and weight. They'll also ask questions that are clinical, um, such as what they came in for, um, medical course of treatment. Uh, things of that nature. It's a pretty quick call. It takes about five to ten minutes depending on the complexities of that patient's case. Great, thank you. And so, you know, they've made the referral call, they've talked to someone about that basic information, then what happens? So once they make the referral call, the organization that takes our referrals, um, which is Statline, that works really close with us, will page us and so our coordinators will then call them back um, and we're expected to call usually within 10 minutes of that referral being made so we will give them a call um, pretty quickly and get a little extra information not too long but it could be another two or three minutes on the phone with our coordinators great and then what happens after the referral is made what are next steps after the referral is made, it can go in a couple different directions. Um, we can close the referral because the patient wouldn't be eligible for some reason, or we could uh, come on site and do a consult where we take a look at the patient's medical record, 
gather more information like labs, um, course of treatment, if there's any tests or MRIs or CT results that we might look at. And we'll also use that as an opportunity to huddle with the nurse or nursing manager or even the physician if they're available, just to let them know that we're there. Um, we'll leave a copy of a registry if the patient is registered. And that's usually pretty quick as well, so we don't want to take too much of the nurse's time, but just to let them know that we're there. And that's it's a patient that is eligible and we might be following for a few days. You had mentioned the some of these referrals may be closed out pretty quickly because the patient isn't eligible. Are there any criteria that the nurses should know about regarding eligibility? Or if they think someone's not eligible, what should they do? There's actually very few things that would enable a patient to be ineligible to donate. Um, there's certain types of cancer, but routinely what we find is most patients are eligible. Um, there's so many ways that we're able to expand the organ resources now to help people that have hepatitis C or even patients that have hepatitis C. So there's just so many medical advancements now that I have to say it's rare that a patient is eligible. And if they are, we'll let the nurse know that and we'll give them instructions on how to handle the rest of the uh, call with them. So if I'm hearing you correctly, really uh, the nurses should be calling in any potential eligible patient that meets those triggers, regardless of health history and, and current medical condition. Is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And by coming on to the hospital um, unit and looking a little bit more in detail into their record and history, uh, we'll be able to surmise at that point whether they would be eligible or not, depending on what the course is or what the plan is of plan of care. So I usually tell nurses, don't worry about criteria. If they meet the triggers, just make the call, and we'll figure that all out later. Great. Thank you. So is there any point when nursing staff should call us back, or how do we kind of continue to follow up or follow this patient throughout the length of their stay in the ICU? What does that look like? And that's a good question, Claire. Um, as we know, when you're in the hospital, things can shift and change for a patient on a daily basis, um, hourly basis sometimes. So there are certain um, situations where we do ask a nurse to give us a call and update us, um, particularly if there's a quick change of care or course of care. Um, for instance, de-escalation de or if a family has decided to make a patient a DNR, which is do not resuscitate, uh, we ask that the nurse give us a call and let us know about that. It just helps us in terms of um, future preparation if we are going to be speaking with a family. Um, we also ask nurses to call if a patient declines and they're presenting without any brainstem reflexes. They may look like they're brain dead, so we ask a nurse to give us a call with that change as well. And also, anytime family, and I mentioned this before, anytime family has questions about donation throughout the course of care, we always prefer to speak to the family directly about donation and answer their questions. Yeah, so you bring up a good point. When exactly does Donor Alliance get involved in the, with the family or talk to family about donation aside from when they bring up questions? Sure, that's, um, that can be a number of different times. Um, so if a patient is declared brain dead, we will always talk to the family. So we'll make a plan to be at the hospital and work with the nursing staff to be introduced so that we can talk to them about donation options. Um, but we also like to be able to 
prepare to speak with a family if we think that they may be looking at withdrawing care um, because the injury is severe enough or neurological injury is severe enough where they are not expected to survive very long um, or they didn't want to live long in that condition or that state. So families um, oftentimes will, I guess, just think about maybe moving forward, future thought about withdrawing care, taking them off the ventilator. So we like to know about that as well so that we can make a plan to speak with a family before that takes place so that they have the opportunity to consider donation. What if the patient is a full treatment, full code, family wants everything done, Do does Donor Alliance still follow that referral? Yeah, absolutely. Um, by following the patient, we gain more information every day just to better understand the family dynamics, better understand the plan of care, better understand if there's shifts in that plan of care throughout the, the hospitalization. So by making a call every day or twice a day to get an update, we not only are able to better understand and anticipate what the family needs may be or what the family grief process is, but we also maintain a good understanding of what the clinical nature or picture of that patient is, um, what organ systems might be um, failing or might be um, being treated, whether it's um, a patient being treated for low blood pressure or for um, poor kidney. Um, so there's so many different things that we can gather um, information-wise by making those calls. It helps us and it helps the family in the end. So this sounds like it is. it can be a fairly lengthy process. It, it, and by that, I mean we could be following a referral for a number of days, uh, maybe even a week or two, something like that. Most certainly, yes. Um, and we work with the hospital too to let them know that we are going to be following for a few days and there are times where we make a plan that will close the referral with the nurse and have the nurse re-refer it or call us back if things change. Um, so we don't typically follow it, you know, follow referral beyond 10, 11, 12 days. Um, in rare, in rare instances, we may, but for the most part, we don't. So Keenan just mentioned that this sometimes can be a lengthy process of following a patient for 10, 12 days, but what happens if it's something quick in the emergency department or it's a John or Jane Doe? Um, should referrals still be made in that case as well? Absolutely. If a referral is made immediately, which it should, um, once clinical triggers are met, that gives everybody enough time um, to do a diligent search for that person's identity um, and, and we're still looking at the clinical picture and just maintaining um, our own understanding of that patient's current condition. And so I think making the referral is the most important piece um, and then that gives everyone time to not only have the patient treated but for us to be in the background having a clear picture of, of what may or may not happen. And along those lines, what if there are no family or friends identified? And because you mentioned family quite a bit, if there's no decision makers, uh, how does that work exactly? Yeah, it's pretty tough if we have a patient that doesn't have any identified family or proxy decision maker at the hospital. Um, we have a hierarchy that we go by when we do authorization with a 
a patient's family for donation. And um, of course, the medical power of attorney is always the first on the hierarchy, and then we go through family members. Um, if we go through that entire hierarchy and don't identify a person, um, the last two um, are generally persons that would be um, in charge of the disposition of the body or uh, a decision maker that's um, not related, which could be perhaps a physician at the hospital. So we do work closely with the hospital to, to figure that out as we go so that we have the right person able to make a decision when it needs to be made. Do you have any other questions, Claire? I don't think so. We really just appreciate your time. It sounds like it's a really collaborative effort between the hospital staff and Donor Alliance working together to identify those patients that may um, not survive their injury um, so that we can work collaboratively together towards the donation process. Yeah, I think we work really closely so that ultimately every single family gets to have the opportunity to make a decision about donation or every patient that has registered to be an organ tissue and eye donor has that decision realized. So I think by working together, ultimately we're helping families um, make their decisions, give them the time and information to help make that decision. Jennifer, do you have any other thoughts uh, for the folks listening to this podcast that you wanna leave them with? No, I just think you know, keeping that number at the forefront of your mind uh, of our over 106,000 people that are on the wait list. Um, I think over 4,000 in Colorado and Wyoming alone of men, women, and children waiting for a life-saving transplant. It's kind of what gets us up every day and doing our job and talking to everyone like we are now to make sure everyone, everyone understands the profound changes that are happening with people that get an organ transplant today and tomorrow and the next day. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being a part of this. We really appreciate it and appreciate your knowledge. And we may have you back at some point in the future. Yeah, thank you for your time. It was great chatting with you. Yeah, great to get to know you guys a little bit better. Thank you for listening to Transforming Lives, the Donor Alliance podcast. If you have any questions or any ideas for a show, send us an email to podcast at donoralliance.org.